Good morning. Can I have everybody rise as we'll read God's word? And we'll start in Psalm 150. We'll read the whole chapter. So please rise. Praise the Lord. Praise God in his sanctuary. Praise him in his mighty expanse. Praise him for his mighty deeds. Praise him according to his excellent greatness. Praise him with trumpet and sound. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with stringed instruments and pipes. Praise him with loud cymbals. Praise him with resonance. Praise everything. Praise him. Praise the Lord. Let us 
If you'd make your way back to your seats, we have a few announcements to go over this morning. Hope you all have been enjoying the very warm weather this week. Lots of fun things going on and lots of things coming up. Uh, just a reminder, today when you take your child down to junior worship or nursery, if you choose to do so, um, you'll be handed a wristband that's going to have an identical, identical number to the wristband that your child is going to wear. And that wristband will be needed in order to pick up your child. So we talked about this last week. Like we're small enough that everybody knows each other. And it's, it's like, oh, do we really need to read a number? This is a proactive action that church leadership wants to take to make sure that we are covering all of our bases and church security. If you have any questions about wristband stuff, you can talk to me. You can talk to Michelle. Um, and we can help you out with that. Also, I want you to be aware of next Sunday is our first um, summer Sunday after the service. So officially it's from like 1230 to two o'clock. So it'll be right after the service. Um, if you're planning on being there, whether you want an active role or if you're just planning on sticking around and eating a hot dog and meeting with neighbors, I would love to know so that we can make sure we have enough food. So if you can let me know, that would be awesome. Um, and if you would like to help, if you'd like to grill, if you'd like to um, make sure to let me know you want to set up tables or take down tables or whatever, that would be really fantastic too. Um, so that's coming up next Sunday. They're so good, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, man. I didn't think this was going to be a bad idea, but now I'm wondering. <laughs> okay. Uh, VBS. Uh, there's a volunteer meeting coming up on July 9th following the service. There's going to be lunch with that, too. So if you've signed up to volunteer or if you have yet to sign up to volunteer and you would like to, Please put that on your calendars for right after the service. And now you have a graphic to go with our theme. It's Knights of the Kingdom Glorious. It's a pretty epic sounding title. Um, VBS itself is going to be August 4th through 6th. So if you have questions about that, you can talk to Sarah. You can talk to Christina. They can help you out with that. Next is, uh, I think, some women's ministry updates. So uh, the women's ministry is going to do another walk and brunch at Herman Woodlands, June 24th. Uh, at 9.30 a.m., so beware of that. The next thing for women is a study in a book called Even Exile and the Restoration of Femininity by Rebecca Merkel, and they will be meeting starting on June 14th at 6.30 p.m., and that will be every other Wednesday for eight weeks. So you can talk to Samantha if you'd like more information about that or to get your copy of the book. I think that's all we have for today. Hey, this morning, we're going to be continuing our study in 1 Samuel, of course. And coming to chapter 13, we're going to see Saul seeking the favor of God and a couple of things that get in his way in that, and the first one being fear that will lead him to foolishness. So we're going to be thinking about how fear interacts with us and how it inhibits our ability to receive the favor or the grace of God as we look at Saul's life today. And the songs that we've chosen are there in order to help us in worship 
to ponder those things as well. So we'll sing the goodness of God. We're going to sing Give Me Faith and um, Be Still My Soul, these songs to help us get our hearts in an attitude of worship, but also to receive the grace of God that is something that we can't earn on our own. And we're thankful for that in the gospel message. So would you bow your heads with me, please? We'll take some time to pray, and then we'll continue our worship service. Heavenly Father, you are worthy of all praise. As we gather to lift your name today, we seek to join in the chorus of creation as those redeemed by the blood of Christ to lift high the name of Jesus, to praise the Lord with all that we are, with all that we have. May our every breath be to the praise of your glory. As we prepare our hearts to hear your word together, we seek your favor. God of all grace, we undeservingly rejoice that it is your pleasure to make us your people for the sake of your great name. Many of us have come today with worries and fears of the circumstances we find ourselves in from Monday through Saturday. And it's hard for us in many seasons of life to lay those things aside and fix our hearts and mind on you. Would you help us to see the importance of worship today? Not only that it is our duty, but may our participation today bring a peculiar delight to our hearts. May the mystery and the unveiling of the gospel of Christ warm our hearts and stir up a sound mind as we think on you and your work today. Holy Spirit, open our ears to hear our brothers and sisters singing the gospel, to hear from your word this morning, to be transformed by it. And may we then submit our hearts and our very lives to you today as a reasonable act of worship. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand and sing with us about the goodness of God together?
I'd like to pray for our kids before they head downstairs. If you bow your heads with me, please. Lord, we're thankful this morning for our volunteers to give up time in their worship service to serve our little ones. We pray, Lord, that you would work through them and in them to cause faith to grow, that they would follow Christ all of their days and bring him glory even today. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you have kids nursery age or junior worship age that you'd like to take down, you can do that at this time. While they're headed down, we're going to sing Be Still My Soul. And a more modern rendition with an additional chorus in it. But the original hymn was written by, get this for a name, Katharina Amalia Dorothea von Schlegel. wonder if you would like to have that name. Maybe not the von Schlegel part, I don't know. But this hymn was written in 1855. And von Schlegel actually founded a Lutheran nunnery in Germany. And while she was there, wrote 29 other hymns. All of, which, all of which were completely lost. This one that we're about to sing is her only surviving hymn. It not, might have been because the 29 just didn't, you know, weren't, there weren't any hits in there, I don't know. But they were lost. Ultimately, out of 30, we've got this one. It's a really, really great hymn. So let's sing that together as we prepare our hearts to worship together.
would turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 13, please. I'd love to know that you're following along as we read in a moment. If you don't have a Bible with you, but you have a smartphone, please feel free to open that up and open up a Bible app or go to a website. Whatever is good for you is good. There should be Bibles in the chairs ahead of you if those are helpful. We are people of the Word, and we want to put our eyes on it and open up our ears to hear it well this morning. 1 Samuel chapter 13, and we'll read the entirety of the chapter on to verse 23. Before that, I'd like to give you some space to meditate perhaps on what we've just sung. Maybe your soul isn't necessarily still. Maybe that's not the best word to describe where you are spiritually this morning. I know for me, Sunday mornings aren't necessarily the stillest moment for my soul. So if you would take a moment, bow your heads Meet with the Lord at the place of your heart individually, and we will read. I will pray as we're closing that time, and we'll come to God's Word together. Exodus 14, 13, and 14. Moses said to the people, Fear not, stand firm, and see the salvation of the Lord, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. The Lord will fight for you, and you have only to be silent. Lord, silence and stillness is so often among the highest difficulties for us, whatever season of life or circumstances we find ourselves, it seems that inaction is really the definition we give to prayerfulness or to meditation or to even standing still for a moment. We know from your word, there's more that can be done when we stand silently and look to you, render our hearts to you, to, as it were, give you space to work without our fumblings and ramblings and uncertainties. Father, would you show us the benefit of finding your favor 
through the wisdom of Christ, through the humility of Christ in us. Would you, as we look at your word, cast out all fear as your perfect love does? We thank you for your perfect love. You indeed love us perfectly. May we rest in that as we think on your word this morning and not be an intense intellectual labor, but rather a calm exhale in the trust of your grace, ultimately to your glory. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Samuel chapter 13, verses 1 through 23. Saul lived for one year and then became king. And when he had reigned for two years over Israel, Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with Saul in Michmash, in the hill country of Bethel. And 1,000 were with Jonathan in Gabeah of Benjamin. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba, and the Philistines heard of it. Saul blew the trumpet throughout all the land, saying, Let the Hebrews hear. And all Israel heard it said that Saul had defeated the garrison of the Philistines, and also that Israel had become a stench to the Philistines. And the people were called out to join Saul at Gilgal. And the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel 30,000 chariots and 6,000 thousand horsemen and troops like the sand on the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped at Michmash to the east of Bethaven. When the men of Israel saw that they were in trouble, for the people were hard-pressed, the people hid themselves in caves and in holes and in rocks and in tombs and in cisterns. And some Hebrews crossed the fords of the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. Saul was still at Gilgal, and all the people followed him, trembling. He waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal, and the people were scattering from him. So Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. As soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. And Saul went out to meet him and greet him. Samuel said, What have you done? And Saul said, When I saw the people were scattering from me, and that you did not come within the days appointed, and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, Now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So I forced myself and offered the burnt offering. Samuel said to Saul, You have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God, with which he commanded you. For then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people, because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. And Samuel arose and went up from Gilgal. The rest of the people went up after Saul to meet the army. They went up from Gilgal to Gabeah of Benjamin. Saul numbered the people who were present with him, about 600.
hundred men. And Saul and Jonathan, his son, and the people who were present with them stayed in Geba and Benjamin. But the Philistines encamped at Michmash. And raiders came out of the camp of the Philistines in three companies. One company turned towards Ophrah, to the land of Shual. Another company turned towards Beth Horon. And another company turned toward the border that looks down on the valley of Zeboim, toward the wilderness. Now there's no blacksmith to be found throughout all the lands of Israel. For the Philistines said, lest the Hebrews make themselves swords or spears. Every one of the Israelites went down to the Philistines to sharpen his plowshare, his mattock, his axe, or his sickle. And the charge was two-thirds of a shekel for the plowshares and for the mattocks, and a third of a shekel for sharpening the axes and for setting the goads. So on the day of the battle, there was neither sword nor spear found in the hand of any of the people with Saul and Jonathan. But Saul and Jonathan, his son, had them. The garrison of the Philistines went out to the pass of Michmash. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Have you ever found yourself waiting on God to act or perhaps answer a prayer that maybe you've prayed multiple times? Maybe you have listened to the teachings of Jesus that we ought to continue in prayer. And you know that just asking one time isn't necessarily going to be enough, but that we must continue on in prayer. And perhaps by the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth time, maybe even the 50th time you've prayed for something, you were hit with this question of, is he actually going to show up in this thing? Saul was in a position where the will of God took a back seat to his need for God's grace. Here it is called the favor of God. This is what Saul points to in verse 12. He says, Then now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal, and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. How do you seek the favor of the Lord today? Saul put God's will in the back seat in favor of God's favor. He ignored the instructions that were clearly laid out for him, and yet he continued to pursue the grace or the favor or the goodness or the help of his God. You might remember back to chapter 4 of 1 Samuel In chapter 4 and verse 3, this is the last big encounter with the Philistines. Actually, the first one we see in the book of 1 Samuel. And in verse 3, after suffering a defeat, the elders ask the question, why has the Lord defeated us this day before the Philistines? And then somebody speaks up and goes, I got an idea. Let's get the ark. Let's bring the ark out and march that in front of our troops, and surely God will give us victory. Surely then we will have the favor of God. We talked about how in chapter 4, God's people had moved away from living according to his will to moving over to living to according to their will. And you're not going to be able to ignore God by pursuing your will. What you'll end up doing is domesticating him. Rather than seeing him as he truly is, the king and creator of the universe, you make him like your pet. You put a leash on him. Put an electric fence in your backyard. You tell him this is where he can go. Then he can go no further. This is where he's allowed to sit in the living room. This is the routine that we'd like you to be in, God. And we would like you to, whenever we pull out the Ark of the Covenant, 
We'd like you to let our enemies run in terror at who you are. Now, fascinatingly, if you remember, the Philistines did run at first, at least in their hearts. They heard the roar of the Israelites. They called them the Hebrews, which you may have seen that in chapter 13. They're called Hebrews multiple times. But the Philistines say, oh, there must be some great God who has entered their camp. And they say, there's this, really, if you're a Philistine, chapter 4 of 1 Samuel has got to be your favorite chapter. Because it is there that they have a very brave heart moment and they say, stand and be men, Philistines. Let's take these Israelites out. They're just worms. Let's, let's deal with them accordingly. And they win. And the ark is captured. Because Israel's domesticated God. One of the sad truths that we find in God's word is that the people of God aren't that creative in ways they mess up. Usually what happens is the same thing over and over again. It looks different because it's different people taking different actions in different circumstances. But at the heart of it, Saul is domesticating God just as much as Israel did in chapter 4. Now, if you look at chapter 13, verse 1, you might notice something strange. Different Bible translations deal with this in different ways. But verse 1 in the ESV says, Saul lived for one year and then became king. And it may be that your translation says Saul was blank years old when he became king. There is some discrepancy scholastically with what we ought to do with this. Many scholars believe that something was lost, that a part of this verse is in one sense lost to time. Another understanding is what the ESV does with it. The ESV translates it not that Saul was one year old when he became king, but rather that he reigned, he lived one year and then became king. If you take the context of 1 Samuel and look at how Saul was anointed privately and then proclaimed publicly, it may be that you say maybe that was the year. That was the year that he lived with anticipation. Not entirely sure. This is one of the points that we need to look at God's word and understand that as Alistair Begg says, the main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. No one should step away from the Christian faith because of 1 Samuel 13.1. You might find other reasons, and I'm not saying they're good reasons, but that is not a good reason necessarily. And it's not a reason to doubt God's word either. The point of verse 1 certainly is Saul's official reign starts now. This is the official act of Saul, king of Israel. How does he do? Does he indeed find the favor of God? Or is it that fear and foolishness are evident in his heart. Will he find God's favor by submitting to his will? Or will he domesticate God so that he might serve his own will? There's some good things in here. If you go to verse 2, we have Jonathan. Jonathan is an instant hero. Look at verse 2. Saul chose 3,000 men of Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash. A thousand were with Jonathan and Gabeah. The rest of the people he sent home, every man to his tent. Verse 3, Jonathan defeated the garrison of the Philistines that was at Geba. And the Philistines heard of it. This is a really great sentence. Especially if you've already read the whole chapter and you know Saul's about to mess up majorly. Jonathan, his son, is a war hero. Presumably very young. But I like what the author says. Basically, Jonathan stinks it up for Philistia. He makes Israel a stench in their noses. Before, they were just under their thumb. 
The Philistines were ruling over the Israelites, as you saw from the latter part of our chapter today. They were in charge of their economy. They weren't letting them have weapons. And they were overcharging them for the sharpening of their farming tools. Jonathan defeats the garrison of the Philistines. He being the only one in his crew that had a sword and a spear, everyone else fighting with plowshares and whatever else they could find that they could get sharp. That's pretty amazing. Unfortunately, that's really the only good moment here. Jonathan's uh, free, liberating Geba. This is a very important city. This is one that was designated to the Levites, the tribe of the priests. Those that were a very special and necessary people in the life of Israel, the nation, because they were the only ones who could offer sacrifices. Isn't that going to play a major role in this story of chapter 13 as we see Saul's actions? Well, if you look down to verse 5, the Philistines mustered to fight with Israel. You can look at the numbers here. It's very daunting, overwhelming. If you look at the strength of Saul and of Jonathan's armies, you get a number that adds up to 3,000 soldiers. That was when they were at their best. The end of the chapter ends with fewer than 600, probably. But the Philistines mustered a fight with Israel, 30,000 chariots. Church, that's just the chariots. They outnumber the foot soldiers simply in chariots 10 to 1. You're not supposed to have that many chariots. Like, the bulk of your army is supposed to be foot soldiers. And so it is for the Philistines. But in comparison to Israel, their chariots alone, that which they would have the fewest of, outnumbers them 10 to 1. Look at the rest just for fun. 30,000 chariots, 6,000 horsemen and troops, like the sand of the seashore in multitude. They came up and encamped in Michmash, right up next to where Saul was. They said, okay, you stink to us, and we're about to get rid of, we're about to put the uh, militant odor remover on you guys. We're going to take care of you here. This is the end. Even Saul's strongest forces pales in comparison. But Saul's standing. Let's give Saul a moment here of something noble. He doesn't run immediately, does he? He doesn't hide in a hole as some people did. Saul stands his ground, but he is afraid. And that fear is going to lead him to something away from submitting to the will of God. And it is in verses 8 through 15 that we see Saul and Samuel discussing what happened. What did you do, Samuel's question is. Well, look, Saul comes up and he says, Samuel, so good to see you. He says that he went out to meet and greet him. He went out with all the normal pleasantries that a king would invite a prophet with. And Saul, you can imagine, running up to Samuel, Samuel seeing over Saul's shoulder this smoke in the background, going, oh no, you didn't wait, did you? You took matters into your own hands, didn't you? Saul's defense is basically, what was I supposed to do? Keep waiting? Now, Samuel, he did do what he said he was going to do. He appeared on the seventh day. It was still the seventh day when Samuel showed up. But Saul was so impatient that you can imagine him not only on the seventh day, but the first, the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, wondering, has anybody seen Samuel? Is he coming yet? Keep an eye out. You let me know the first thing that you see of Samuel's... I mean, they were all going to be looking for Samuel because they needed the favor of God. 
But Saul steps away from his will by stepping out of his lane. He's the king. He's not a priest. Kings are to rule politically and militarily. Priests and prophets are to lead spiritually in things of worship and in delivering the word of God. And Saul steps out of his lane. What was I supposed to do? Keep waiting? Now you might have noted that it did say that this was the instruction of Saul, of Samuel to Saul, to wait at Gilgal. This is a reference back to chapter 10 and verse 8. Um, Quite some time has gone by, but this was set up for sure. This was something he needed to remember from the moment of his coronation. You need to wait for me at Gilgal. Don't do anything. Stand still. Is there anything harder for you to do than to stand still and not do anything? It may be that you, like me as a teenager, might hear that and think, Sure, I can do nothing. I'm actually really good at that, right? Summer vacations for me, I was very good at doing nothing. I tried, and I actually worked really hard at doing nothing because people would invite me to things and they would offer me jobs and they would offer me things to do. And I'm sorry, I'm too busy to act. I've got a whole lot of nothing to do. To me, that was, in one sense, an escape from reality, escape from responsibility. My mindset was clearly that of, if I have to work hard at something, I'm going to lose out at something. I want to maintain all the time that I can to myself. A funny thing happens when you grow up then, doesn't it? You start to realize that it's not so easy to do nothing anymore because there's always a hundred things on your mind. There's always plenty of other things to do. There's plenty of things to ignore, but there's more things that you're ready to do and willing to do and able to do. And by your own admission and reasoning, it seems some things that maybe I shouldn't do or maybe it's supposed to be the task of somebody else, I'm already here. Why don't I just go ahead and do it? This is where Saul is in his mind, and he has acted foolishly. Listen to the definition of this foolishness that Saul is receiving from Samuel. This word, you've acted foolishly. It brings about a lack of moral or spiritual sense that leads to failure of judgment. He says, Saul, you lack moral and spiritual sense. You are a fool. And thus you have acted as a fool. You have failed in the realm of judgment. John Woodhouse is a theologian and commentator, he says that the foolishness of disobedience and the wisdom of obedience can only be seen when we take into account something other than our circumstances. It's a long sentence that I had to read many other times, but let's break it apart for a second. How do we know the foolishness of disobedience? How do we know that when we're disobeying, we're acting foolishly? Or how do we know that obeying is actually wise? If you want to discern those things, you have to look outside of your circumstances to figure it out. Because your circumstances will justify whatever action you decide to take. Saul gives up his list of excuses. He says, you weren't here, Samuel. The people are running away. Some of them are hiding in tombs. Some of them are joining the enemy. The enemy, by the way, is circling around me. Samuel's gone. People are leaving. The enemies around me, what was I supposed to do? He's justified himself based on his circumstances, so he doesn't even know that there is foolishness and disobedience. Finding favor, 
the thing that he wanted in verse 12. It means following God's will. It has to mean that. You will not find the favor and grace of God outside of God's will. And the good news is, is that God's will is that you receive favor, that you receive grace. You receive a good thing that you don't deserve. It's truly the only good we have to hope on from the Lord. It's fascinating that when he says, I haven't sought the favor of God yet, he's appealing to a Hebrew verb or adjective that that denotes an idea of weakness or sickliness. He's acknowledging his weakness here. He's pretty humble in his acknowledgement that I need the favor of God, but he goes about it outside of God's will and order. Finding favor means following God's will. It means opening up everything we protect and value against our instincts. And that is good. Because guess what? Your instincts are not as great as you think they are. How our instincts are praised in our generation. Go with your gut. I think even if you have a perfect gut, if you take such good care of your gut, you should not go with your gut. Listen to your heart. The message of every Disney movie ever created is foolishness. Could it be, though, that even within the church, that sometimes we seek God's favor outside of his will so that we can protect our own will? That we seek his goodness, but we don't want to seek his way of contributing that goodness to our lives. What we'd rather do is have God be on a leash in our backyard within an invisible fence where we can tell him, you are free to roam from that corner to the other, but you're not allowed to come inside unless I let you, and you're certainly not allowed to leave the yard. Have you ever sought God's favor outside of his will to protect your own? Have you ever been in a place where you recognize that you've messed up and have said, well, Lord, this is what I decided to do because you weren't doing what you said you were going to do. Samuel said he was going to show up. Where was he? See, in our period of waiting on God, we can get stuck in fear. It's exactly where Saul is. And fearful hearts find foolishness so quickly. Because fear in our hearts will override our logic and our thinking. And sometimes we go, no, 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 fight or flight. I know, my nature is like, like if i got to fight or if I've got to flight, if fear is driving that, sometimes I can make really good decisions to do so. But when it comes to your spiritual life, if you are acting on a basis of sinful fear, you will not find the favor of God. You will only find your own foolishness. But let's, let's have a little more grace on Saul. Let's think about where he is at this time. Because when the Philistines, with that stink in their nostrils about the Israelites, decide, let's go ahead and make a move. They camp all around Saul. And instead of saying, everybody go, what do they do? They send the raiders off the bench. They send three companies of scouts They don't send their chariots. They don't send their horses. I mean, this is offensive in one sense, isn't it? You guys are so puny. We're not even going to use the full force of what we have. We mustered our troops just so you could see and be amazed at how wonderful we are, how big our army is. But then we're going to just send out a couple of scouts to come and take you guys out because that's all it's really going to take. 
Perhaps some of you can remember seeing news footage during the Cold War of the Soviet Army and how often they would send this footage out of all their soldiers marching and their, their tanks driving through the streets and the show of military power just so that we know what they could do if they so choose. This is what Philistia is doing to Saul, and it is working. Fearful hearts find foolishness. Do you, in any place in your Christian life, feel like the world around you that is living contrary to God is just kind of sort of winning? And, and like any kind of pushback culturally is going to be in vain, going to be kind of pointless? Because the momentum of worldliness seems to only be catching steam day after day. And if the church can even kind of get out of our pews a little bit and take action, our actions so often seem so measly that it's not really going to make that big of an impact, we think. Do you feel like the world is winning in the spiritual battle? We talk a lot about a culture war. But church, we are not called to fight in culture wars. Did you know that? We are called to stand for truth. We are in a spiritual battle. But your Christian commissioning to battle is not, I think, is not for Facebook. I don't even think it's politically, though you should involve yourselves politically if that's your conviction. The spiritual battle that we face first starts at the place of our hearts. Where we can so easily let the fear of what the world is doing around us lead us to foolishness. Is your walk today, your Christian walk, is it marked by fear? If we could see just a completely transparent timeline of your spiritual life, how often would we see moments where your decisions and actions and feelings and emotions and even your worship are marked by fear? I would hate for you to see my timeline and how much Fear invades my life and how much I bow to it immediately and get domesticated by it and almost willingly put the collar on and say, tell me what to do, fear. You're in charge. Saul is terrified. And so he acts. And so he even reasons with himself, Samuel's not here. What am I supposed to do? I'm losing my soldiers. The armies are all surrounding me. If I die, if my soldiers die, who's going to protect Israel? We're it. We're the only ones that showed up. And even some of us that showed up have defected and run away and hid in tombs and holes in the ground. Can you feel where Saul is for a moment and recognize that we would probably do the same thing? Or at least least be tempted to do the same thing. But Samuel does show up. And Samuel's appearance shows us that God's will is not so far off that we need to take things into our own hands and disobey him. That's, I think, one of the clearest messages in this passage. In that moment where you see it, let's, let's just go ahead and look at it one more time. Not in chapter 12, in chapter 13. So Saul says, bring the, the burnt offering. Verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came. Whew, yikes. Is it easy for us to sidestep the will of God in order to protect our own will? And do we not so soon after realize, I could have trusted God for this. I should have trusted God for this. I should have not taken my own financial situation into my own hands and made a foolish decision. 
I shouldn't have just jumped on that decision that I needed to make because what were we going to do otherwise? Who's going to care for my family? Who's going to pay my bills? Who's going to do all these kinds of things? The message to Saul in his fearful foolishness is that if he would have waited, God would have taken care of things. And even if the Philistines just decimated what army was even left, Israel would still be under the mighty hand of their good God. Without whom nothing happens, good or bad. Proverbs 19.3, you might have read this this past week or past weeks on the reading plan. It says, when a man's folly or foolishness brings his way to ruin, his heart rages against the Lord. And yes, Saul was in that moment of timidity and weakness and saying, oh Lord, I need to offer the sacrifice. I need to get your favor. I need to do things God's way. And I'm waiting for Samuel to show up and he's just not doing it. And, and I'm getting nervous and, and things are getting worse. And uh, oh, you know what? Fine, God, if you're not going to show up, I'll just do it. And you can deal with the repercussions of that. See, when Saul was wondering what was going to happen. He had a moment of humility, but when he decided to take things into his own hand, he raged against the Lord. We were talking about it in Sunday school this morning when Moses was told to speak to the rock in the wilderness and water would come out. And Moses was so ticked off at Israel. He was so annoyed with their complaining and their whining that when he comes up to him, he says, fine, you want water? Here's water. He hits the rock with his staff and then God instantly says, you're not going to the promised land. Seems like a parenting moment, doesn't it? We're not going out to eat with that attitude. But God was not wrong in punishing Moses in that moment. And God was not wrong to punish Saul. And his punishment, fascinatingly, is not one that says, you offered a sacrifice that was unauthorized, and I'm sending fire from heaven to take you out now. Saul's punishment is rough but he was still breathing when it was over. His royal line would end with him because his heart was not right. Now, let's look at this matter of the heart because in verse 14, you should be thinking David, right? A man after what? God's own heart. That's David. That's the prince that God has commanded to become king after Saul. But let's listen to a smart British guy again. John Woodhouse says that the matter of being after his own heart is actually about the place this man had in God's heart rather than about the place God had in the man's heart. That God had chosen this man according to his own will and purpose. Who chose Saul, by the way? Some of you would say Israel chose Saul. They were, that was the kind of king they wanted, a king like the nations. That's true. They would have picked Saul when they saw how tall he was. But God also chose Saul, didn't he? God chose Saul knowing exactly what was going to happen. And he had a clear purpose, even though that purpose was going to be sidestepped by the king he chose. And the evidence of that is in verse 14. Saul was not a man after the heart of God. But his bigger problem wasn't that his heart wasn't right in regards to his own actions. His bigger problem was that he was not truly the one chosen by God. Well, wait, yeah, he was, because God said, yes, that's true. Listen to Woodhouse one more time. After his own heart is about the place this man had in God's heart, rather than about the place God had in the man's heart. 
Because the truth is, is that you're not going to find a king who truly has a heart after God. Why is it that David has a heart after God? Why is it that anyone has a heart after God? It is because of the initial work of favor done by the Lord in the life of an individual. Because of the individual's experience and receiving that favor of God and having that heart transformation. That we are not of people who believe that all we need to do is get our act together and, and clean up our lives so that God can receive us and give us favor. No, we are those who admit that we are destitute and hopeless before God. And we received his favor according to his grace, according to his mercy. We read it this morning again in Romans chapter 10. Why is it that God shows mercy to some and not to others? God says, the person that receives mercy from me is the one I choose to receive mercy. And he chooses it unconditionally. And that is what Saul needed. So it's just as Jonathan became a stench in the nose of the Philistines, the scarier and far more significant issue is that Saul has become a stench in the nose of God. And if it is true that being a person after the heart of God is not initially dependent on my feelings towards God, but rather God's choosing of me, then we can't walk away from this passage and just say, hey, the thing I need to do is don't be a fool, don't be afraid, and then everything will be fine. It's far more complicated than that, and yet in some ways more simple. But the scary thing is it doesn't depend on us. Because apart from God's work, we're left with a heart that lets fear lead to foolishness. And that is not marked by the favor of God, but it's marked by the wisdom of the world. Listen to 1 Corinthians chapter 3 in regards to worldly wisdom. In chapter 3, we'll start at verse 18. Paul the Apostle writes, let no one deceive himself. Boy, we could stop right there for Saul, right? Did he deceive himself, church? Yeah, pretty bad. I can just offer the sacrifice. I'll just disobey God and get his favor. What a foolish thing. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. For it is written, he catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the thoughts of the wise, that they are futile. So let no one boast in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or the present or the future, all are yours and you are Christ's and Christ is God's. Particularly note verse 19, the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. And if we are in that situation like Saul, where we are going to be prone to make our own decisions based on our own circumstances and based on the, whatever's going on around us, the Bible tells us that we are fools. Even if in the world's eyes we seem wise. Saul's foolishness disintegrates his relationship with God, and so his worship is useless. See, not only did Saul take the wrong role, but in taking that wrong role, he acted in such a way as not to have a nearness with God, but a distance from him. 
He offered a bad sacrifice. See, his worship was like when what we're tempted to do on Sunday morning sometimes. That is to come in, to sit in the pink chair, to stand when we're supposed to stand, to sit when we're supposed to sit, to open up our Bibles, to bow our heads and close our eyes, to stand up again, to say amen, maybe if something sounded smart, and then leave when it's over. And if that is the whole idea of worship in your heart and mind, you're a fool. If it is not an encounter with the living God with whom we can only receive favor or goodness by grace alone, and if that is not at the seat of your heart the motivation to worship, even on a day where, let's face it, we're not all always motivated to come into this room. We're not every time skipping our way to church and so excited to be here. I get it. But if even on those days we can't stop and say, Lord, I don't feel like it, but I know I need it. And I know you are worthy of it, more importantly. If we can't do that, then we, like Saul, will let our foolishness disintegrate the primacy of worship. The truth is, church, our actions in worship are a matter of life and death. That is not to say that you should worry about every Sunday morning coming with the wrong heart and walking out and being struck by lightning on your way out from church. But what you do on Sunday mornings, what you do when you open your Bible on Monday morning, what you do when you join with other believers in a small group, what you do in any act of worship that that is your attempt at aligning your heart with God's will is a matter of life or death. Because it will either bring a deepening of your life in Christ or it will be an evidence to you of your distance from him. The fool is the one who presumes he may obtain the favor of God by acting in the place of God. That is where Saul messed up. But far from considering the will of his father secondary, far from letting fear lead to foolishness, Christ, the Holy One, the Son of God, gives us the wisdom of God by which he lived his perfect life in every moment, trusting in the will of his Father. John 5.30, he says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Can you say that in your life in Christ? I don't seek my own will, but the will of God. I think we all have to admit, we at the very least struggle with that day to day. This one, though, this Christ, the Holy One, who is the seeker of his Father's will, has proven this in his death and resurrection. He has proven that he is for us the wisdom of God that corrects the foolishness of sin. This is good. Because otherwise we have no hope of salvation at all apart apart from him. We have no hope of getting ourselves to the wisdom of God on our own. It is by faith alone and Christ alone and according to grace alone that we are saved and we are kept in that salvation. Jesus says again in John chapter 8, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, that is his reference to the cross, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. Remember, in 1 Corinthians, Paul says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness with God. Well, the opposite is also true, because our message of the cross is foolishness to the world. Hey, why don't you join us? We're going to sing songs to a guy who died on a cross and that we can't see. How many people do you know that would go, that is the most ridiculous thing I ever heard? You are a fool. But Christ says, when you have lifted me up, when you see me for who I am at the cross, then you will know that I do nothing on my own authority. You will know the truth about me, Jesus says. And so those who see him as he is, 
Those of us who have come to him in faith and trusting by grace alone to make it to the end, we are wholly devoted to the Father's will by the wisdom that the Son has become for us. Not by our own doing. Not, thanks for saving me, now here's my very impressive sacrifice that I'd like to show you. Rather, it is the wisdom of God. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. That Christ Jesus became to us wisdom from God. Righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That is right standing with God. That is a growing in holiness, a growing in devotion to him. And that is then redemption that he has bought us back from the foolish ways of our past. So that, Paul says, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Saul, you fool. Wisdom would have been that Saul would stand at Gilgal with his troops diminishing, with the enemy surrounding, and with Samuel nowhere in sight, and he would stand there and boast in the name of the Lord in much the same way as his substitute replacement would later on, standing before a giant as just a young boy, and say, you come to me with sword and spear, but I come to you in the name of the Lord with a sling and some rocks. The foolishness that the world would perceive in the King David was actually the wisdom of God. The cross, as the world sees it, is foolishness. May you not be tempted to think so likewise. It is the wisdom of God for salvation. That is what Christ has become for us. This is the favor granted to his people. The favor not of those who have impressed God on their own, but those who have fully trusted in him, regardless of the circumstances around. Remember the words of Woodhouse. If we really want to understand the wisdom of obedience and the foolishness of disobedience, we need to look outside of our circumstances. Because if we judge it on our circumstances, we will always act in our own favor, of our own purpose, and our own will. Saul treated the sacrifice of God the way that perhaps a football team would treat the huddle before the game. He acted as though worship and sacrifice to God was a trite thing, a ritualistic thing. But remember again, it is a lack of moral or spiritual sense that leads to the failure of judgment. That is the foolishness that Saul shows us this morning. And so we must worship Christ in the face of opposition. And that must be, church, your priority. When you face opposition, when trials come, don't let your first reaction be, how am I going to get out of this? Or how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to save money? How am I going to stay healthy? How am I going to preserve what I have here? Say, no, how am I going to worship God while this is going on? Because that church is why it's going on. It's not going on because God says, oh, I wonder how well their financial prowess is. Let's hit them with a big recession. No. Any trial that you face is there as a test of your sincere worship. And will reveal whether you truly trust in the favor of God or the wisdom of man. Do you, like Saul this morning, feel surrounded by your circumstances? Wisdom is displayed through a proper view of the troubles of this life. We're going to have troubles. They're not going to go away. You can get through this one, and another one's coming right behind it. The greatest trouble in my life, though, will be found if my relationship with Christ is not one of worship but perhaps one of joining the team huddle. Perhaps one of, 
I, I just, when is this service going to be over? I, I got to do the thing after this. I just, you know, I have so much to do. This is, you know, if, if that is what our worship is marked by, do not expect the favor of God in your life. Do not expect that God is pleased with us by our worldly wisdom. Trust him for his wisdom that looks like foolishness to the world. Feelings of lack, lack of control or fear of circumstances, foolishness is right there next to us. It is near when we let our fear overcome our faith. Remember again, we quoted earlier, I think in the prayer from 1 John, perfect love casts out all fear. When you're on the Mount of Gilgal and you're surrounded by your enemies and the prophet isn't showing up and everybody's leaving you, God loves you. He still loves you. And that love has the power to cast out your fear. May it be so when we face various trials. May we not be those who wait for the sword in our hand, but that we wait on the word of our God. Wait on the promises that he's made to put our trust fully in them and not in what we think we could do to sidestep the problem. The spirit of Christ in us testifies to his love, to his holiness, to his wisdom passed on to us in Christ. And that's why we're going to sing in a moment this song, Yet Not I, But Christ Through Christ in Me. Listen to a couple of the lyrics for that before we sing it. Because wouldn't it just be so easy for us to coast through the last song? And it would be so foolish. It would be so foolish for us to just say, good, now we're singing the last song and we're just going to tell you the Christ in me. Okay, think on these words, church. What gift of grace is Jesus my Redeemer? There is no more for heaven now to give. He is my joy, my righteousness and freedom, my steadfast love, my deep and boundless peace. To this I hold. My hope is only Jesus. For my life is wholly bound to His. Oh, how strange and divine. I can sing all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. The night is dark, but I am not forsaken. For by my side the Savior He will stay. I labor on in weakness and rejoicing, for in my need His power is displayed. No fate I dread, I know I am forgiven. The future, sure, the price has been paid. For Jesus bled and suffered for my pardon, and he was raised to overthrow the grave. If you believe that, if that's really true, what can this world do to you? What is it that we're so afraid of? Christ has reversed death and given you life. To this I hold. My sin has been defeated. Jesus now and ever is my plea. The chains are released. I can sing. I am free. But yet not I, but through Christ in me. Let's pray, and then we'll sing that together. Heavenly Father, there are difficult things in this passage that need to be dealt with at the heart level. And we, in our own wisdom and our own priorities, probably don't want to deal with these things. We'd rather just go ahead and let fear direct us. Let fear take control and maybe get us to where we want to be. Lord, I know many of us feel cornered in life right now. And our circumstances are far beyond what we can control or affect 
And Lord, contrary to the wisdom of the world, that is a good place to be because it sets us squarely in a position that we can only trust in you. And it may be, Lord, that you are working a specific thing in somebody's life and maybe in all of our lives so that we can stop trusting in money or trusting in our own efforts or trusting in other people to bail us out of some situation. But to trust that Christ is enough to trust in the wisdom of God that Christ has become for us. And to say that whatever happens in my life, whatever the circumstances are around me, whatever I feel a lack of, Christ is enough. And through Christ, I'll prevail. Not because of what I've done. Not because of my great wisdom or prowess or ability, but through Christ in me may be true of all of us this morning so that we might find your favor, so that we might find that peculiar peace. Or, as the song says, how strange and divine I can sing, all is mine, yet not I, but through Christ in me. We ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand, if you're able, with me, please, and let's sing, yet not I, but through Christ in me, together. What gift of grace
song. Um, so if you're unfamiliar with it, may, may it be a prayer for you as well. We hear from Hebrews 13 as we come to our close now. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. And all God's people said, Amen.